So starting at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, it's going to be a great day. Please, please, please be in prayer for Trinity Kids this year. Been a lot of hard work go in place, and, and you'll be amazed at some of the things that Melissa has prepared in making that ministry ready. Uh, it's also a reset in that next Sunday morning. We're going to be uh, starting up the ki- children's church ministry for our kiddos during the service time. And, you know, revival's coming in two weeks. Two weeks from this morning, Philip Corbett is going to be here. And I'm just, I, I can't hardly wait because God is going to speak some things into the life of this church that's going to change us. I, I believe that with all of my heart. And so set aside Sunday morning, uh, 10.30 on Sunday morning, Pastor Corbett will be speaking with us. As Dana mentioned, we'll have the, the all-church picnic that evening. And fried chicken is even better than Philip Corbett. Uh, we've discussed that this week. And... <laughs> I, I told him, I said, now, we're kind of old-fashioned around here. When we have meals where pastors are involved, we serve fried chicken. And he was okay with that. Uh, they're having theirs today, and they're serving fried chicken. So, <laughs> uh, it's going to be exciting. Then uh, each evening at 6.30... Mark that down on your calendar. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evening at 6.30. We'll be meeting here. And uh, the reason we're doing 6.30 rather than 7, I've had some people say, can you start church at an odd hour? Well, yeah, you can. We're starting it at 6.30 because we want to be respectful of families that have kids in school. And so I, I know it may put a little undue effort on some of you who are getting off work to be here at 6.30, but... I'd rather put the effort on you than on those kids that have to be home and in bed so that they can function the next morning. So be praying about our revival. I asked you last week, fast and pray. That means we're getting really serious with God. Really serious. God, speak to our hearts. You know where revival starts? With me, with you. In each of our individual hearts is where revival starts. Pastor Corbett can come here and he can share the word of God, but if we haven't prepared our hearts for revival, it's just going to be another sermon. We don't need just another sermon. We need revival. We need God to stir our hearts. And I'm going to try and prepare that for him this morning. I want you to go with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter number 1. In Nehemiah, the entire book, you find one of the most beautiful portraits of the people of God worshiping God in all of Scripture. In fact, I, I look at the book of, of Nehemiah as being, and the story of the, uh, that Nehemiah shares with us, as being a wonderful climax to what was a sad chapter in the history of God's people. Nehemiah chapter 1, I initially only want to share the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had returned from exile. 
They said to me, the survivors in the province who returned from the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Lord Jesus, we are the 2018 version of your people. I know and I realize that Nehemiah was speaking to a group of people who had just returned from a horrible period in the history of Israel, your chosen people. And I realize, Lord, that what they had just gone through being in Babylonian exile away from their homes, away from their places of worship, had taken a great toll on their lives. But Lord, what Nehemiah is getting ready to share with us is still applicable for the people of God in 2018 when, when it comes and when it, as it regards worship. And so, Lord, this morning as we, as we uh, expound upon your word, I ask for your anointing to be upon each of us so that we can get all that you have for us today in Jesus' name. How many of you want all that God has for you today? Amen. We're talking to the right people. See, what had happened with the people of God is when they disobeyed and forsook Jehovah God to go after worshiping idols, um, God allowed that city of Jerusalem to be invaded the Babylonians took all the people that weren't killed, took them with them, and took them back to their homeland. And there they stayed for 70 long years. 70 long years to be exiled. Now, uh, there are places where I felt in my life as if I were being exiled. But I can't imagine being exiled for 70 years. Nehemiah himself, many people don't realize this, but Nehemiah himself was born during the captivity. He was born during the exile. He had never seen the city of Jerusalem. He'd never witnessed the former temple which had now been destroyed and this remnant of people that had now returned back to what was left of Jerusalem were rebuilding. He'd never been a witness to any of that, but God had a plan, and he had a man. Those two things placed in God's hands are powerful, powerful things. God's plan and God's man. Their temple had been destroyed you know, remember that beautiful temple that Solomon, David's son, had built? It was, it was almost beyond description, all of the gold and all of the craftsmanship that went into that beautiful temple that God had allowed Solomon to build so that his people would have a place to come and, and to experience the presence of God. 
But when they turned away from God and turned to pagan idols to be their, their source of their worship, God said, okay, that's it. I'm taking my hand of protection off of you. I, I, I'm, taking, I, I'm taking, you may be my people. You, you're still my people. But I'm taking the blessing that I had for you as my people away from you because apparently you don't want it. And as a result, that beautiful temple plundered and destroyed. The city of Jerusalem burned up. The walls of that great city torn down. It was a city left in ruins. Now think about this. A city that God had set aside as a place for people to worship him. A temple built within that city set aside as a place for God's people to worship him. It's all gone. The people are even gone. They've been taken into Babylonian captivity. And now 70 years later, there is a remnant of them that are returning back to what's left of the ruins. As of the time of this writing, a temple had been rebuilt. <laughs> I, I, I say that loosely because the temple that had been rebuilt, it was not even a, a rough replica of what had formerly been there. It was just, a, just what they could do with what they had. But there were among those people who were the remnant, a desire to worship God again. And so they needed a temple in which to worship. And, and so they built this replica, not a replica because it in no way, shape, or form resembled its former glory, but it was an effort on their part to rebuild. Their worship had not yet been restored. In fact, many of the sins that had resulted in them been, being taken into exile in the first place, those sins were still there. Um, yet, as I said, God had a plan and he had a man. And he chooses a Jewish man named Nehemiah, serving in a king whose name was Artaxerxes. Another one of those names, uh, Ashley, if that were a boy that you're going to have, let me just suggest don't name him Artaxerxes. Uh, It'll be tough, for, take many years for him to learn how to spell that, let alone pronounce it. But Nehemiah was serving under the king Artaxerxes who lived in Persia. Now think about this. Here's God's plan to use a Jewish man who had never seen his homeland, one who had never laid sight on the former temple. God uses this man as the means by which to restore worship to God's people back in Jerusalem. Now, what I want to say to you about this matter of worship being restored, and that is what I've titled my message this morning, Worship Restored, uh, is the same, are the same words that, that Nehemiah had to understand before he could go about the task of restoring worship among the people of God. There must first of all, when you're trying to restore worship, there must first of all be responsibility taken for why the worship 
was lost in the first place. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. Now, you know, Nehemiah, even though he'd never seen his homeland, never seen the temple, he knew why his homeland, its people, and the city that they called the city of God, he knew why it was in the condition that it now was. The ruins of the city, the ruins of his country, were the results of sin that, uh, against the holy God that had redeemed these people. Let me just say to you that it's high time, I believe, that we as a nation, and even more specifically, we as the people of God, quit passing the buck for our failures and stop laying the blame for the condition of our nation and the condition of many of our churches upon someone else. Um, the moral dilemmas that we see all around us that are decaying the very fabric of our nation and that are even decaying the churches in many cases in our nation today can be traced to one source. Sin. Sin. That big three-letter word. Now, we've decided, I guess in many cases, that it would be more beneficial, that it would be easier for people to start coming to our churches if only we as the church would take a softer stance on things that God has called sin. Rather than preaching against sin, many churches have started focusing on the things that we are doing that deserve a pat on each of our backs for how well we're doing it. We stop preaching against sin. You know, back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, and many of you as well, and this is just an example, we decided it was better to not talk to our kids about sexual matters. So the education of our, of our system of our country said, hey, we'll, we'll educate your kids on sex education. How's that working out for us? It's not. We allowed corruption to go on in our government. We allowed corruption in our churches. We allowed corruption to invade our individual lives. And rather than, for example, when it comes to the government, rather than going to the ballot box to vote out the corruption, we just stayed at home. And we still do. Uh, in the churches, rather than rocking the boat and risking the loose of the, the loose, risking the loss of influential people who can give significant amount, amounts in our offerings, rather than risking losing them, we went soft on moral issues. We allowed things like financial mismanagement, sexual misconduct. To be ignored in our churches. In our individual lives, we began telling ourselves that small things, you know, those small things, like cheating on our taxes, stealing what belongs to God, those are things that will never be found out about any of us who've done those things. So that's, that's, that's those, those small things. 
Let me tell you what, friends. There are no references in the Word of God to small sins versus big sins. It all comes under one broad category, sin. And in many ways, the people of God today have gone soft on this matter of sin. We became more focused in our churches and our worship incorporating the ways of the world rather than impacting the world with the way that we worship God. I mean, you go to some churches today, it's like a laser light rock concert. Because we want to be like the world. We want to do what draws in the crowd in the world. The Bible tells us that we are to come out from among them and not be like them, but rather impact them in such a way that they will become like the people of God ought to be. I don't know about you, but as a parent, when I was a parent, my, I have my middle daughter here today, uh, and, and she can vouch for this. One of the lessons that Brenda and I tried to instill in them when choosing their friends was choose friends that you can impact rather than friends that will impact you. And the reason I could be confident in saying that is because I knew that they were brought up hearing the Word of God. I knew that they were brought up believing in Jesus. And I knew that they were doing their best to live lives that reflected the fact that Jesus lived in them. So I wanted them to impact others more than letting others impact them. And the same things happened with the church. The world, in many ways, impacts the church more than the church impacts the world. Let me tell you something, friends. What the Apostle Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 17, is still true today. The time has come for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord. In the church. Government can't correct what's gone wrong. Education can't get us back to where we need to be. A better economy, a new a new gimmick, I like to call them. A gimmick to bring more people into the church building. A new gimmick is not going to bring about sport, spiritual and moral recovery. It's time that the people of God start being the people of God and take responsibility for the sin that has become so rampant around us because, because, because we are the only one with a cure for the sin. And his name is Jesus. He's the cure. And we have relationship with him. But the truth of the matter is this. Before Jesus can take care of the sin problem that's become rampant, there has to be remorse for the sin. There has to be some godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10. Paul tells it this way. He says, godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. But worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. There must be remorse for the condition that sin has brought to us. When Nehemiah 
received the word back from the remnant of people that were back in Jerusalem, when he received a report from them about the condition of their nation, of their country, of their city, of their temple, what happened to Nehemiah? Our text says he sat down and he began to weep. As a matter of fact, he didn't just weep for a little bit. He shed tears and mourned, the Bible says, for days, for a number of days. What had happened in his homeland had broken his heart. That simply means Nehemiah shed some tears. He mourned. He cried audibly. He was brokenhearted over the condition of God's people. Um, you know something that there's all too little of in church in my today, in my opinion? Weeping. How long has it been since you saw wet eyes in the church? How, how long has it been since we t- shed tears at our altars? Years ago, when I led a, a class that worked with people who were struggling with life-controlling issues, I mean, let's call it what it was. It was a faith-based alternative to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, sexual addicts. But we brought into that class people who were dealing with other life-controlling issues and everything equally applied to them. I gave an assignment to each person who came into that class about being honest about where they were in their life. I want to share with you what is a rather lengthy response from a person. This is not his real name. I will call him Robert. But here's his testimony. By the age of 12, I was smoking a pack a day of cigarettes, using drugs, alcohol. I had become very racist and had my first tattoo, a Nazi swastika tattooed on my forearm. I'd been arrested for public drunkenness and spent a month in juvenile detention. During that same year, I, now keep in mind, he's 12 years old. I drank so much whiskey one day, I was home puking in the toilet and I lost consciousness while doing it. My head fell into the toilet bowl and I would have drowned in my vomit if my little brother hadn't found me and pulled me out. I was rushed to the hospital by ambulance with alcohol poisoning. My heart stopped a couple of times, and I had to be resuscitated. I can still see the EMT standing over me, fading in and out, saying, Don't leave me. Don't leave me. He goes on to say, I had a father who was physically abusive, that is, when he wasn't in prison. He tried to kill my mother in front of my brother and I numerous times. All the standard stuff, you know. As time went by, though, things continued to get worse. By the time I turned 17, white power was tattooed across my shoulders and a bigger swastika tattooed on my back. I was running around with hell's angels and using methamphetamine every single day. And that went on for 25 years. Along with all the crime and the things that go along with it. As I look back, he says, there are several times that I thought I got lucky. Times when I should have died from overdoses near motorcycle wrecks at 120 miles an hour and over. 
violence, including armed robbery. But now looking back, I know my Savior wrapped his loving arms around me just to spare my life. I have a daughter who went into a teen challenge recovery program with a pill addiction. I was so happy for her and did not want her to live a life in bondage as I had all those years and wanted to support her in every possible way. The girls in that program had a choir and they would go to a different church each Sunday evening and sing and give testimonies to raise money for their program. I tried to make it to as many of those church services as possible And during the altar call at one of those services, I had to fight back tears over the brokenness that I had brought to my life and to my daughter's. But I had this extremely hard heart because my dad would beat me if I cried even a little bit as a boy. So I conditioned myself to not be the crying type. But every week I would hear those girls sing and tell their stories and I would just sit there and sob all the while not trying to draw attention to my weeping. My daughter wanted me to go into the program, but I wouldn't do it. At one point, she was going to leave the program. It was a voluntary program, by the way. So I told her that if she stayed and if I was not clean by the time she graduated, I would go in. So she stayed in, and on October 21st, 2010, I showed up for their choir outing at a local church. While there, I had this incredible panic attack come over me, like I had to get out of there and now. But I knew my daughter was counting on me to be there, so I stayed. I went down to an altar for the first time in my life. And the tears started coming. And they wouldn't stop. I told God how sorry I was for the mess that I'd made of my life. And I told my daughter of my sorrow for being the kind of dad that I had been to her. The result was that God delivered me that night. Oh, I still went through hell physically and it was a rough road. But God took away my desire to ever use meth again. My girlfriend got saved that night also. Well, I entered the program as I had promised my daughter, but I got to tell you, I slept the majority of the time for nearly five months. My girlfriend, who is now my wife, Colleen, would stop by on her way to work and wake me up to feed me. Then on her way home, she would wake me up to feed me again, and then she would go home. The only other times I would get up was to shower occasionally, go to some of the programs of the Teen Challenge program, and watch a little TV. But God had changed my heart. And he'd done it overnight. When I was able to get up and around, I started going to the parks to witness to homeless people and pass out food gift cards that my church had supplied me with. I have a huge love for the people that are still in the bondage, and it's only by the grace of God that I didn't end up where they are. Colleen and I were married shortly after we got saved as we didn't want to live in a sinful relationship any longer. (laughs) We began to pray for unsaved family members. And as of today, nine members of my family have gotten saved. They're all faithful members of a local church. And all of those people were saved and I was miraculously delivered because my daughter was in a Christ-based recovery program. And they they were daily praying for me, every one of them. Only God can do that. I have a heart for people going down that road, especially if they're kids. I've been there and can identify with them. I went to a bunch of counselors as a kid. Uh, 
I would do that as part of my probation and would never talk to them because they were from a different world than mine. I would love to find a way to take what the enemy intended for my destruction and use it for the glory of my Savior. These kids today have no idea that they are robbing themselves of their future here on earth as well as what God wants for them in eternity. As the saying goes, jails, institution, and death are the three destinations of abuse. And he closes it this way. I'm sorry to go on so long with this, he said. I just, it's just that I love to tell anybody that will listen. I love to tell anybody that will listen what Jesus, the eternal lover of my soul, has done for me. We're to tell everybody. We're never to be ashamed about it. The end. Now, here's why I read that to you. Though I rejoice when I hear stories such as Robert's, I got to tell you, there's still a part of me that wonders this. Why have we now made it necessary for programs like Teen Challenge? And the Dream Center in Los Angeles. Why, do we make it, why have we made it necessary for programs like those to find and rescue people who are bound by addictions and abuses and lifestyles that don't, listen to this, that don't even vaguely resemble what we've come to believe a church person should look like? Those are the very people that Jesus put us here to save. I mean, we can't save them, obviously. You know what I'm saying. Those are the very people that Jesus put us here to reach so that he can save them. Why are we missing the strung-out drug addicts, people who are engaged in the pornography, the, the, the sexual slave industry, the victims of abuse in our churches? Why, why are we missing? I believe the answer is really very simple. It's because many of our churches have adopted this policy called, we don't care. We don't care. And all too many churches, many of the people who attend church every week, just like many of us here this morning, we've settled in. In other words, we've come to this conclusion. We're saved. We've purchased our fire insurance against hellfire. And we're just waiting for the Lord to come back and take us home to be with Him. That, my friends, is one of the most dangerous attitudes, dangerous conditions that a church, the people of God, can ever get in. And I don't use this kind of terminology very often, but that's about as unchristlike as you can get when you are unconcerned about your country, unconcerned about your church, the people in your church, unconcerned about others who, catch this, are as lost as we once were. Nehemiah said, before you can deal with the sin problem, you've got to have remorse over it. And the apostle Peter told us, judgment has to begin in the house of the Lord. It has to begin with us. I'll move on. How many of you said amen to that? 
After remorse, there must be repentance. Oh, I love talking about repentance. I I love it. Uh, You'll find in our passage that Nehemiah repented of the sins of people who existed before him that had sinned against the Lord. He also repented for his own sins as well because he realized that he too bore at least a part of the responsibility. Now the evidence of his repentance are seen in the fact that he fasted and prayed. Unless there is weeping over the ruins, unless there is responsibility taken over our condition, remorse and then repentance for our sins, there will never be a return to the former days. That's what God was speaking to Nehemiah. Um, Since I'm on this point about repentance, maybe we ought to discuss it a bit. Maybe we take for granted that everybody knows what it is. What is repentance? Repentance, simply stated, is a matter of turning away from the direction you've been going and beginning to walk in the opposite direction. And I never can give that simple definition, again, without thinking of those guys that I ministered to for nine years, some of whom were in prison and some who had just gotten out. I asked that question one day among a group of 23 convicts gathered in a room for me to teach them the Word of God in an in a isolated room at the Ellsworth Correctional Facility. I said, guys, what is repentance? And there was one in the room that wanted to impress me with his knowledge of theology. So he raised his hands and he said, Repentance is a 360-degree turn. (laughs) You know, as I think about it, there's a lot of truth to that miscalculated attempt at an answer, especially for that group of guys. Perhaps the problem... For many of those guys, I finally figured out, is that they were making a 360-degree turn. Everybody stand to your feet. Make a 360-degree turn. Now, which way are you facing? You're facing the same way you started. Now you can be seated. It's called a visual sermon illustration for those of you that may not get it. Instead of a 180-degree turn, they were making a 360-degree turn. Instead of turning and going the other direction, they turned completely around and find themselves headed in exactly the same direction. No wonder the word that they often used to refer to one another was the word bonehead. (laughs) Repentance is a choice of the will to turn away from what you've been doing and to start going in the direction that God wants you to go in. Is everybody clear on that? I don't know how to make it any more plain than that. But there's one more aspect of this matter of repentance that's so important for us to understand. I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once said it this way, A Christian is not one who never goes wrong, but one who is enabled to repent and begin over again after each stumble. Because of the inner working of Christ. 
Oh, my goodness. I am so glad for the grace of God. When I became a Christian, I didn't instantly get it all right. And neither did any of you. And so we need grace that will enable us to repent after every bonehead move we've ever, we make. That's what made King David a man after God's own heart. That boy knew how to repent. And Lord knows he needed to time after time after time after time. We're told that after his failures, he would fall on his face before God, asking God to forgive him, expressing godly sorrow for what he had done. Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Renew within me a clean heart. And God in his mercy would do it, and he gives that opportunity to every one of us as well. How many of you messed up this week? Come on, just tell me. Me too. Repent. Get back out of the ditch and get on the road again. Now, Nehemiah, he's expressed remorse for his own sin, the sins of God's people. He's repenting before God on behalf of himself and the, and the people of God. And then he tells us, all from, from chapter 2 to chapter 6, and obviously I don't have time to read it all, he gives us the details of the walls of the city of God, Jerusalem, being rebuilt and repaired. Now, obviously, walls around cities are no longer built to provide a fortress against an enemy trying to overtake the city. But it was as a result of this enemy breaking through and tearing down the walls of the city of Jerusalem back in that day and in that culture that made it necessary for walls to be rebuilt. You see, when Jerusalem was plundered by the Babylonians, the people of God taken into Babylonian captivity, it was as the result of this enemy, i got to turn on my cooler here, it was as a result of this enemy breaking through and tearing down the walls. Jerusalem, as I said, was the city of God. It was the place where God said that he would meet his people. It was the center of worship. And I know we don't build walls anymore. But hear me on this. Before we can, as a church, can really worship God in the way that we need to and in the way in which God desires us to worship him, which is in spirit and truth, I wonder, rather than walls, if there are some fences that need mending. Fences between us and God. Fences within our families. Fences within our churches. Perhaps there are relationships, both familial and spiritual relationships, that need mending. Maybe there are even patterns of worship that I talked about last week. You know, worshiping the church or worshiping a doctrine or worshiping a denomination. Maybe we need to mend some of those fences before God. Well, Nehemiah, over the course of this great story tells us how it can take place. And here's the recipe. First of all, for it to take place, it takes intercession. That means appealing to God on behalf of one another. Appealing to God. 
interceding, just coming before God and saying, God, I'm not here with my daily laundry list of needs, but God, I'm here today because I know of some needs of my church family. And I'm coming before you, God, and I'm going to intercede on their behalf so that they can be restored to health again. Nehemiah not only confessed his sin and those of his forefathers, but he besought the Lord first of all. If you go back to chapter number 1, remember I said he's in the palace of King Artaxerxes in the country of Persia, what we now know as Iraq. He's never seen his homeland He's the cupbearer to the king, and back then that was a pretty important position because the cupbearer had to sample the wine and had to sample the food to make sure that nobody had poisoned it before it got to the king. How many of you want to apply for the job of cupbearer? Me neither. But here he is in this important position. He has to intercede before God that King Artaxerxes will allow him to go back and lead this reparation that's taking place in the city of God. And amazingly enough, King Artaxerxes gives him permission to do it, all because Nehemiah interceded in prayer. The next step is it requires initiation or taking initiative. Friends, it's not enough to sit back and wait for someone else to do the job. We have to take initiative. When we see a need, we have to take the initiative. Someone has to take the initiative if change, needed change is ever going to take place. Lastly, it, re- it, involves, it requires involvement. Nehemiah took the initiative, and he became the leader of rebuilding the walls. But you know what? He didn't do it by himself. He had to have help. He needed the people who were there, the remnant who had returned from exile, to get involved and help with the rebuilding of the walls of God's city. Okay, let me repeat it. After remorse for their sin had been expressed, after repentance for their ways had been pledged, The walls have been rebuilt. Look what happens. The word has to be read. Now, this is hugely important in this, friends, because many of this remnant, like Nehemiah himself, were folks who had been born while in captivity. They had never heard the word of God read to them. They, all they had was what had been passed down from previous generations. Some no longer even spoke the native language of Jerusalem. They couldn't have understood what was being read to them if it had been read to them. So what happens? In chapter 8, verse number 1, they asked or sought for a scribe whose name was Ezra. What do scribes do? Scribes translate and write the word. Ezra comes along 
And he brings along with him the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. And as a result of the internet intercession that first of all allowed Nehemiah to return back to Jerusalem and help lead the rebuilding of the walls, and as a result of the involvement of those who helped Nehemiah with that task, the outcome was an appetite, a desire for the word of the Lord to come about. Did you catch that? They wanted to hear the word of the Lord. What what God was doing inside of them was beginning to work itself out. They now wanted to hear what God had to say about how they should live. They sought out the writer, the translator of the word. His name was Ezra. To come and teach them about the laws of Moses that God had given to their ancestors. And verse 3 of chapter 8 tells us that even after the reading of the books of the law from the rising of the sun until the noon hour. From the rising of the sun until the noon hour. All the people listened attentively. Verse 5, it gets even better. Tells us that when Ezra opened the book of the law in full view of all the people. All the people stood to their feet. They were showing their appreciation for the Word of God. Do you see the change that's taking place? It started with the rebuilding of physical walls. But once that had been accomplished, crude as those new walls might have been, I'm doubting that they could have kept any enemies out if an enemy had attacked them. But at least they were showing, this is the city that God has given us to encounter him. We've already built a crude temple to represent the place that God has set aside for us to worship him. Now we're going to fortify this city once again. But out of all of that, God is going to... Instill within us a hunger and a thirst for more of God. It's amazing how God works. How does it apply to us? Well, if you look at verses 6 through 8 of Nehemiah chapter 8, let's just look there right quick. Verses 6 through 8. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Why is that significant? The Levites, that tribe of Judah who had been set aside for the priesthood, They began explaining the books of the law again. Scribes began translating the books of the law into languages that everyone who had come back could understand. And out of all of that, worship was restored. The knowledge of God, the reading, the understanding of the Scripture produced worship. You know, some folks seem to get all stirred up, worked up, fired up all too often mixed up. After some good singing, Jacob. And don't get me wrong, I love some good singing myself. It's part of worship. But if that singing 
doesn't line up with the word. If the people hearing it aren't instructed so that they might understand who the focus of that worship is about, true worship will never take place. And in closing, as the worship team comes, let me just point out what we already read accompanied their worship. There was the longing of their hearts, the lifting of their hands, and the lowering of their heads bowed to the ground. Why is that important? Because it signifies their desire for more of God. It acknowledges their recognition of His Lordship in their lives. And it pointed out to them that it was no longer about their ways. It was about submission and surrender to His ways. Friends, that's what worship is. We lay ourselves aside. God, it's all about you. It's not about what I want, what I prefer. I lift holy hands and I, I bow my head before you, God. Because only you can be the focus of my worship. Lord Jesus, this morning, we've already recognized and acknowledged that you're a Lord. And God, I pray that the work that you have done in our hearts and in our lives today has produced within us more and more of a desire to be like you. And so, Lord, as we worship here in just a moment, help us, Jesus, to lay aside afternoon plans. Help us, Jesus, to lay aside whether or not Jacob and Doug are in the same key. Help us to lay aside, Jesus, all of this other stuff that we've made worship to be about. Help us to surrender it to you and look into your face to taste and see that you are good. And in the process, become more and more like you. In Jesus' name.